Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming. It's a, a real pleasure to see you on a November Monday evening. Um, if you're just arriving, there is some tea there, and by all means have it with you where you're sitting. And we'll have some tea at the end, too. We aim to finish the session around nine, and uh, there'll be some tea and opportunity for chat. Um, one or two uh, housekeeping things. This is one in a series of events that uh, David Galloway and I and Richard Gamble. David, would you stand up just a minute? Let these folks see. This is David Galloway. Uh, and uh, Richard Gamble is at the back. Uh, and Gordon Stewart from my own church, who's not here tonight, and myself, are really the kind of architects of this with the help of Westwood Hill, Cartsbridge Evangelical Church, and Lennox Evangelical Church. Um, and we're indebted to these churches for the support and for the use of their facilities uh, to Westwood Hill for tonight. So there are others in the series, and please make yourself familiar with them, and do make an attempt to be with us. Um, the next event that we're responsible for is on the 1st of December, and uh, it's going to be in Lennox Evangelical Church in Dumbarton. So that's a wee bit of a challenge You've got to get yourself over the Erskine Bridge and down the road a bit. So try and make a special effort to be at Lennox. Now, Ian Morris will be leading that session. As you know, Ian is a television producer and has produced the God Question series. Um, and uh, we're going to be looking essentially at the first of his three programs and looking at some of the film he's shot, some of the views of atheists and uh, Christians that he has captured. Uh, and we're going to be discussing something around the origin of the cosmos. So that's on the 1st of December. Now, if you look at the program, you'll notice that we've included some events at the University of St. Andrews because it is the Templeton Foundation with the University of St. Andrews that are putting up uh, some of the funding for this series. So a week tonight at 5.15 in St. Andrews, uh, Professor Ron Numbers from uh, the University of Wisconsin will be talking about Darwin and God, the historical relationship. Um, the best we can do about that is to offer transport if anyone would like to go to that lecture. I'm certainly uh, intending to go, and I would be leaving Glasgow about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So if you wanted transport, uh, I'd be happy to uh, uh, meet, you, meet up with you and uh, take you there. Uh, however, we probably wouldn't be back till about 8 or 9 at night. Anyway, 1st of December is our next event, so do keep that in mind. Now, we would like to keep in touch with all of you, so I put a blank card out around the tables, and if you would give me your email address, your postcode, and your full name. Now, do that if you're already on our mailing list, and I know a number of you are, there's no need to give us it again, but if you're not receiving emails from us, then if you fill up this card... And let, let us have it. Uh, that would be useful. You know, I say to people, there are only two forms of writing that are illegible. Uh, one is a doctor's prescription. And the other is when you ask someone to give you your email address. So <laughs> could you try and make it legible? Because it ain't any use if we can't read it. So email address, full name, and your postcode. And that allows us to uh, stratify the emails into various parts of the United Kingdom. So tonight uh, we have uh, Peter Williams, and uh, Peter uh, is uh, a philosopher in residence with Damaris Trust. Damaris work in schools and more broadly uh, across relating Christianity to secular culture. Um, Peter is a philosopher, and uh, I've been with Peter all day today. We've been 
travelling around. So for me, it's been like having been at a philosophy seminar all day. So I know that you'll enjoy uh, hearing Peter. Peter is quite a prolific author. Um, we don't have his books here tonight, but um, he does have a book, uh, A Faithful Guide to Philosophy. Uh, Peter's a Christian philosopher who tackles the big philosophical questions, and he's written this book uh, fairly recently. And uh, I also picked up the day when we were at Glow, uh, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists, and A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism. So these are the books that Peter has produced. I've only got these copies, which are mine, but if you're desperate to have them and you give me a good price, uh, I might be prepared to part with them. Um, there are a couple of other books around. There's a few copies left of the Dawkins Letters by David Robertson uh, outside and the price is on them. And we have at Westwood Hill an apologist in residence in Richard Gamble. And Richard has produced a little book entitled Reclaiming Reason. So there are some copies of that out in the foyer and you can attend to that. Uh, at, at the end. Now, I think that's all I need to say at this point. Um, Peter is going to speak uh, for about an hour, uh, and his subject is Have the New Atheists Overreached Themselves? And then, following that, we'll have a time for QA. So, fasten your seatbelts, get your brains in gear, listen carefully, and uh, get your questions ready. And when Peter's finished, uh, we will be able to ask some questions. But let's welcome Peter. He's come from Southampton. We're delighted to have you here. Thanks so much. Okay, well, I think I'll probably stand up here, uh, not so that I'm six feet above contradiction, uh, as the saying goes, because obviously we'll have the Q&A uh, session at the end as well, uh, but so that your eyeballs have to do less darting to and fro uh, between uh, me down there uh, and the PowerPoint and the, uh, the pretty pictures uh, up here. Uh, it's uh, been delightful to get more acquainted with this area uh, of Scotland over the last few days. I flew uh, from Southampton into uh, Edinburgh on Saturday, and I gave a, a talk on uh, New Testament archaeology uh, to some of the students at Heriot Watt University uh, on Sunday morning. And then I've been over here uh, only having a seminar on philosophy insofar in as all day I was being asked questions about philosophy. I, I hasten to add, I didn't volunteer uh, this information without it being uh, elicited uh, from me. So uh, my topic this evening is, have the new atheists overreached themselves? You've already been told that I'm a Christian philosopher, so you already know that my answer is going to be yes. Uh, the interesting bit comes in what I can do uh, in the, the space of the next hour to do something to substantiate uh, that position and to uh, uh, dip our toes into a number of different areas uh, where I would argue uh, the new atheists uh, have got things uh, badly wrong. Uh, now this means that I'm going to be criticising uh, certain viewpoints and advancing certain other viewpoints this evening. I just want to assure you uh, that if you happen to be one of the people who holds one of the viewpoints that I criticise this evening, I'm not criticising you. Uh, this is uh, a, a matter of uh, criticising ideas uh, in the search for truth. Uh, not a personal attack on people for holding certain ideas. Uh, we are uh, a community, hopefully, in search of truth. Uh, and as the Bible says in the, in the book of Proverbs, as iron sharpens iron, 
Uh, so one man uh, sharpens another as we engage in the discussion. So obviously I have a, a platform here to give a presentation, uh, but afterwards you'll have a platform to uh, engage in questioning, and uh, we are all hopefully engaged uh, in the search for truth in our lives. So the new atheism, uh, dubbed as such by an article in uh, Wired magazine a number of years ago, uh, by uh, Gary Wolfe, an agnostic writer, who described the New Atheists thus. He said, the New Atheists condemn not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. That is, according to the New Atheists, religion is not only wrong, it's evil. It's not only an intellectually mistaken position to believe in God, but it's uh, something that is evil in as far as it is dangerous for uh, society, uh, particularly. If I had to uh, boil down the new atheism to a formula, uh, as it were, I would say this, that the new atheism is kind of the combination of scientism, that's scientism, not science, scientism, plus uh, materialism, a materialistic or naturalistic worldview, plus a moral crusade against the dangers of religion. I put those three things together and you get the new or neo-atheism, uh, uh, in contrast to what uh, I wouldn't call the um, old atheism, in case that's uh, pejorative in today's culture, uh, but classical uh, atheism, perhaps. There are, of course, different types of atheist, just as there are different types of theist and different types of Christian and so on. So what is a scientism? Alex Rosenberg, a, a new atheist a philosopher of science, in his book The Atheist's Guide to Reality, uh, embraces the term scientism and being scientistic uh, to describe his worldview. And he says being scientistic just means treating science as our exclusive guide to reality. We trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge. So for me to attack scientism is not for me to attack science. I can say that science is an excellent way of knowing some things about reality without thinking that science is the only way to know anything about reality. What is materialism or naturalism? Well, if I were to use the kind of rhetoric that many new atheist writers uh, unfortunately use, tongue-in-cheek, I might say something like this. Uh, materialism is a philosophy made up by a bunch of pre-scientific ancient Greeks and accepted by about 2% of the world's population. Uh, more seriously, I would say that clearly naturalism has been the dominant worldview of Western academia since uh, sometime in the early to mid-20th century. Alex Rosenberg describes it as the view that physics is causally closed and causally complete. That is, once you've told the physical story about reality, that explains everything, and there is nothing beyond that explanation that is real. So according to naturalism, reality is nothing but an, an uncreated, closed, impersonal and non-intentional physical system, a closed physical system. Here's Alex Rosenberg's description of his naturalistic worldview, and I think this is an excellent 
description of the naturalistic worldview. Is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on as before, except us. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. I'm going to suggest this evening that the new atheists have overreached themselves and have got it badly wrong in at least three areas. That they're wrong about scientism. That they're wrong, as a kind of flip side of their view of the theory of knowledge, they're wrong about the nature of faith, at least within the Christian tradition. And that finally they're wrong about materialism. Now, Victor Stenger... Uh, recently uh, died. He was a a new atheist uh, physicist, wrote a number of books, um, and he is clearly sensitive to this accusation that the the new atheist movement is scientistic in their theory of knowledge. He says, critics accuse new atheism of scientism, which is the principle that science is the only means that can be used to learn about the world and humanity. They cannot quote a single new atheist who said that, though. He thinks this is a a false accusation. Well, here are a number of quotes from one writer. And I'll tell you in a moment who the writer is, but let's focus on the viewpoint first of all. This is an author who says that faith is... Belief in the absence of supportive evidence. That science is belief in the presence of supportive evidence. That science doesn't require or use any metaphysics, any philosophy. That reason is just the procedure by which humans ensure that their conclusions are consistent with the theory that produced them and the data that test those conclusions. Being rational, he says, just means that when you talk about some subject, the words you use are are well-defined, we know what we're talking about, and that the statements you make are self-consistent. So to sum up that viewpoint, I think you will hopefully agree with me that this is an accurate summary of the viewpoint. In other words, this person thinks that reason checks the coherence, the consistency of our beliefs, to show that they they might be true, but that either there is or isn't supportive evidence for the truth of those beliefs. And if there is supportive evidence that those beliefs are true, then that belief is a scientific belief. But if there isn't supporting evidence, then to hold that belief is a matter of blind faith. That seems to be what this person is saying. And the interesting thing about this is that this person is Victor Stenger. These are all quotations from Stenger's book, The New Atheism. So although Victor Stenger seems 
wary of the accusation that neo-atheists are scientific in their theory of knowledge, it does seem to me, at least, that Victor Stenger is scientific in his theory of knowledge. Others are not shy about this. This is uh, Peter Atkins, a chemist from Oxford University. In his book On Being, he says the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality. It's, it, the views that we have now are open to revision. We make observations. We compare notes. That kind of scientific approach to things, he says, will forever survive as the only re reliable way of acquiring knowledge. Or Richard Dawkins, he divides beliefs into two categories. There are two types of beliefs. There is uh, proper evidence-based beliefs on the one hand. And he says in his uh, book, The Magic of Reality, that the only good reason to believe that something exists is if there's real evidence that it does. It always comes back to our senses one way or another. So by evidence, he means empirical sensory data. Uh, whether direct or uh, indirect through scientific instruments and so on. On the other hand, says Dawkins, there's the improper methodology of blind faith. He says faith is believing in something when there literally isn't a scrap of evidence. If there were a scrap of evidence, then it wouldn't be faith. Well, think about this demand from Dawkins that in order for any belief you hold to be a rational belief, a sensible belief, you must have some evidence that supports it. Well, if we followed that rule, we would be in very deep water. Because that rule itself can't be justified by evidence. What is the evidence that supports the truth of the statement? It's only reasonable to believe things if you have evidence for your belief. And indeed, if you applied that rule consistently from Dawkins, you would end up in an infinite regress. You would say, here's something I'm considering believing, belief A. But... Uh, it would be unreasonable for me to believe A unless I have some evidence that supports A. Call that evidence and the opinion that it supports the truth of A, call that B. But of course it would be unreasonable for me to believe B, to believe that it's really there, to believe that it actually does support the truth of A and so on, unless I had evidence for my beliefs call that C. You can see what's going to happen here. In effect, we're never going to be able to justifiably or rationally believe anything according to Dawkins' rule. And indeed, that rule that it's only sensible to believe things if you have evidence that supports your belief, I think is open to just obvious, everyday counterexamples. For example, uh, our belief in the truths of logic, without which you couldn't do science, are beliefs that depend upon rational intuition, not beliefs that we derive from supporting the truth of the law of non-contradiction with evidence. 
Or if I say, well, I think it's true that torturing small babies just for fun is wrong. Well, that's not something that empirical evidence can support. But nonetheless, I think it's something that I know to be true. So there are a whole host of these kind of beliefs that philosophers um, call properly basic beliefs, uh, intuitionally obvious beliefs that we form in certain circumstances in life, but not because we're drawing a conclusion based upon some sort of empirical investigation of reality. And you can see also that there are things that we believe and we clearly believe rationally that you, you can't support with evidence. Some things, like my belief that I had uh, coffee at breakfast this morning, I'm rational to believe that just because I remember having coffee at breakfast. I don't have to go and do some sort of little argument in my mind where I'm drawing the conclusion I had coffee for breakfast on the basis of evidence. But if we got the CSI team in and the police and maybe we had a video record of what went on, we could appeal to empirical evidence to prove that I had coffee at breakfast. But there are all sorts of things that we rationally believe where you can't appeal to empirical evidence to show that you're right. What about the belief that this apparent real physical universe that exists outside of ourselves, out there in the world, that it really is real, that there really is a physical universe, rather than the, the idealist position that all that really exists are our concepts or sense impressions of things that appear to exist out there but, but don't really exist. All there is is the ideas. Well, there's no way that you can tell the difference between those two beliefs on the basis of appealing to the empirical evidence. Those two worldviews disagree about whether there is really any empirical evidence that we access. C.S. Lewis put it this way. You can't produce rational intuition by argument because argument depends upon rational intuition. Proof rests upon the unprovable which just has to be seen. Now Sam Harris is usually classed as a new atheist writer, but he does at least get this bit of philosophy right, I think. He says this, that intuition, the most basic constituent of our faculty of understanding, uh, that we use intuition in matters of ethics, like I, I mentioned the belief that torturing small babies for fun is wrong, um, but he says, it's no less true in science. The traditional opposition between reason and intuition is a false one. Because reason itself is intuitive to the core. Any judgment that a proposition is reasonable or logical relies upon intuition to find its feet. And in his book, The Moral Landscape, although I think he's wrong in trying to say that science can give us access to justification for, for objective moral beliefs, I think he is right when he says things like this. 
which directly contradict the main thesis of his book, by the way, science cannot tell us why scientifically we should value well-being. The demand for radical justification levelled by the moral sceptic could not be met by science. Science is defined with reference to the goal of understanding the processes at work in the universe. Can we justify this goal scientifically? Of course not. What evidence could prove that we should value evidence? So I think that the new atheism, taken in broad brushstroke terms, is wrong about scientism. I think they're wrong about faith as well, the nature of faith. Some of the late Christopher Hitchens says that religion is a surrender of reason in favour of faith. There's a dichotomy between faith and reason for Hitchens. A.C. Grayling, the New Atheist philosopher, says faith is a stance or an attitude of belief independent of and characteristically in the face of evidence. It's non-rational at best. It's probably irrational given that it involved deliberate ignoring of evidence or commitment despite our lack of evidence. Again, Richard Dawkins criticises faith for requiring blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Well, here I can't help but quote uh, Professor Alistair McGrath, who puts it so well when he says Dawkins' uh, idiosyncratic definition of faith is itself an excellent example of what Dawkins defines in The God Delusion as a delusion of a belief tenaciously held and defended in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Because the classic Christian tradition has always valued rationality. And it does not hold that faith involves the abandonment of reason or believing in the teeth of and here my pedantic philosopher nature kicks in and I want to add in the word overwhelming contrary evidence. Professor John Lennox puts it well as well when he says uh, in his book Gunning for God, the new atheists are characterised by the blind faith that all faith is blind faith. It's the new atheist concept of faith that's a delusion in the precise sense they assign to the term. Against all the evidence, do they not even bother consulting dictionaries? They irrationally reduce all faith to blind faith and then subject it to ridicule. Talking of dictionaries, here's the definition of faith from Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. And you'll notice that I have highlighted in red... The definition, firm belief in something for which there is no proof. That certainly is one of the meanings of the word faith. But notice that it is one of the meanings of the word faith, not the meaning as the New Atheists portray it. And it's not even the major 
usage of the term. It comes quite a way down the list there, doesn't it? Under one, the major usage of the term, we have allegiance to duty or a person, loyalty, fidelity to one's promises and so on. Then we have a definition that's about belief and trust in God or belief in the doctrines of religion. So as David Marshall and Timothy uh, McGrew put it uh, in their book True Reason, Confronting the Irrationality of the New Atheism, it's a really good collection of essays on this topic. They say, by faith, we as Christian thinkers mean trusting, holding to, and acting on what one has good reason to believe is true in the face of not overwhelming evidence to the contrary, but difficulties. The difficulties of life, they mean. It's as if the new atheists haven't heard of biblical verses like 1 Peter 3.15, where the Apostle Peter commands all Christians to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, their hope in Christ, and do it with gentleness and respect. And the word translated here as an answer in the Greek is apologia, from which we get the modern word apologetics, which of course, to the English ear, now makes it sound like you're apologising in the sense of saying sorry. But the more original meaning of this term comes from the legal context in in ancient Greek thought. It's what your lawyer would do for you in court, in your defence, giving his defence speech, giving the evidence that you are not guilty. Sam Harris and various other new atheists will, however, appeal to other bits of scripture which they think support their view that at least Christian faith should be according to the Bible, blind faith. So Harris, for example, says that Hebrews 11 verse 1 defines faith as, quote, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Read in the right way, he says, this passage seems to render faith entirely self-justifying, i.e. unjustified. And by read in the right way, of course, I would say, read in the wrong way. Let us delve briefly into some uh, literary interpretation. This is the end of the previous chapter of Hebrews. This is Hebrews 10, 32 to 36, where the, the unknown author of Hebrews is writing to Christians who are suffering persecution in their culture. He says, remember those early days after you'd received the light when they became Christians, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. And other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Because, note this, you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions... So don't throw away your confidence, it will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. The author is here is talking about the Christian's hope of receiving heaven 
of receiving eternal relationship with God in heaven after death. And that these spiritual possessions are more important than the earthly possessions that they're suffering the loss of because of their persecution. It is the fulfillment of the divine promise of Hebrews 10.36, you will receive what he's promised, that Hebrews 11.1, the next chapter, has in mind. So Hebrews 11.1 says, it's saying having faith in God means trusting him to deliver on his promise of heaven, faith is being sure of what we hope for, without needing to personally see the fulfilment of that promise in the present time of suffering and certain of what we do not yet see. So Hebrews 11.1 does not say or imply that faith means trusting God in the absence of any reason to trust him. Indeed, quite the reverse. I pointed it out, didn't I? The writer says, because you knew you should have this trust. Delving into the, the Greek again momentarily. Now faith, Greek pistis, is the assurance, hypostasis, of things hoped for. The conviction, elekos, of things not seen. These terms are very important to understand. In Greek mythology, pistis was the spirit of trust, of honesty, of good faith, who escapes from Pandora's box when it's opened and deserts humanity. Uh, her Roman name was Fide, from which we derive the English word faith. In Greek, the word pistis means to be persuaded, conviction of the truth, a confidence, belief, or trust in something. The Greek word hypostasis, assurance, commonly appears in ancient business documents. It's a business bit of lingo. It conveys the idea of a covenant between people as an exchange of assurances that guarantee the future transfer of possessions that is described in a contract. So, we sign this contract saying, if you give me X, I promise to give you Y. And we have a legal contract, a hypostasis, binding us together in this contract. And the Greek word elekos, translated as conviction up here, it actually conveys the idea in the Greek of bringing forth evidence. Indeed, particularly the idea of bringing forth evidence that demonstrates something, particularly something that's contrary to the surface superficial appearance of reality. So, with that understanding of the Greek terms in mind, you could more fulsomely perhaps translate this verse as, now that the warranted trust, pistis, is the title deed of your heavenly hope. The possession of present appearances overturning evidence of heaven. So as Peter Grison, again, True Reason, says, Hebrews 11.1 speaks 
of the scope of faith extending beyond present visible evidence and transient circumstances resting upon prior evidence that things will indeed be better in the future. So this passage does not present faith and reason in tension. Neither does the story of doubting Thomas in John's Gospel, to which Harris and others avert. He misinterprets the, the story of doubting Thomas in John 20, 24, 31, as that, demonstrating that ignorance is the true coinage of this religious realm. He says, uh, quoting Jesus, Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. There you go. Jesus himself endorses blind faith. Mm. A.C. Grayling likewise interprets the story this way, saying it's a, a theological virtue to have faith that is belief in the absence or the, in the presence of counter-evidence as the story of Doubting Thomas is designed to illustrate. That's the point of the story, he says. Really? Um, that would be a little odd, considering the fact that, for example, in John's Gospel, Jesus himself is portrayed as saying, believe on the evidence of the miracles he's performing. So, would John's Gospel portray Jesus as saying, it's good to believe on the basis of evidence... Here's, I'm doing evidence for you. And then give a story portraying Jesus as saying, it's all about having blind faith, folks. Um, that would be a rather confused writer. Perhaps we ought to give him a bit more benefit of the doubt than that. Before the resurrected Jesus offers himself for empirical examination to doubting Thomas, Thomas was not asked to believe without evidence. For although Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came one time, nevertheless, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. So he has got the evidence of ten of his very close mates. Indeed, Jesus clearly commends people who believe without demanding to see the resurrected Jesus for themselves before they believe that it happened. Not those who believe without evidence that it happened. Those are two rather different things. And John himself, of course, in telling the story, portrays the other disciples as believing in the resurrection. Why? Because they have blind faith? No. Because they have first-hand experience of meeting the resurrected Jesus. And whilst the evidence initially given to Thomas was clearly better than the evidence that's available today in as much as he was in the position to interview the eyewitnesses firsthand, to go and look at the tomb and see that it was empty and so on. Indeed, John explicitly tells us at the end of his gospel the reason why he's told us the stories in the gospel, including, of course, the story of Doubting Thomas. And he says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the writer of John's Gospel explicitly tells us the reason I've told you these things is to give you a reason for believing in Christianity. 
So I think Sam Harris and A.C. Grading are interpreting the story of Doubting Thomas to suit their polemic against faith rather than letting the text itself inform them as to what's going on. I think it's better to define faith with C.S. Lewis again as the art of holding on to things your reason has accepted in spite of your changing moods. <laughs> so they're wrong about scientism, wrong about faith, and I think wrong about materialism as well. Here is uh, Alex Rosenberg again in his book, The Atheist Guide to Reality, talking about a problem in the philosophy of mind for materialism. And he goes on at some length, and I think convincing length, to inform us that no chunk of matter can just by itself be about another chunk of matter. This is what philosophers call the intentionality of mind. I can have thoughts about things. But no chunk of matter can just by itself be about another chunk of matter. Without a mind to interpret the first chunk of matter as being about the second chunk. The brain, he says, can't have thoughts about Paris or about anything else for that matter because it's just matter. Matter stands in all sorts of physical relationships to other bits of matter. Causal relationships. But uh, being caused by another bit of matter, is, it's almost the reverse of the idea of being about something else. It says piling up a lot of neural circuits that are not about anything at all can't turn them into a thought about stuff out there in the world. If basic matter is not about anything, then sticking lots of basic bits of matter together in however a complex form won't buy you this quality of being about reality. One clump of matter, says Rosenberg, can't be about another clump of matter. Okay. Rosenberg also says at another stage in that same book, this. Consciousness tells you in no uncertain terms what the content of your thought is. What your thought is about. It is about the statement that Paris is the capital of France. That's the thought you are thinking. It just can't be denied. You can't be wrong about the content of your thought. But put those two statements together and you end up with, I think, a very powerful argument against a purely materialistic, naturalistic account of what thoughts are. You'd have the premise, purely physical realities can't have thoughts about anything, you have the premise, we have thoughts about things. What follows deductively from those two premises is the conclusion, therefore we are not purely physical realities. So what does Alex Rosenberg, as a naturalist, do with this problem? Here's what he does. He says, so 
And the important thing to do here is to try and explain away the appearance that we have thoughts about things. I'll just let you think about that one. (laughs) In 2011, the philosopher Paul Copan put a question to Richard Dawkins, who was on a speaking tour of America, um, that teases out further problems in the philosophy of mind for materialism. He, He said this to Dawkins. He says, it seems hard to differentiate between the arguments of the atheist, who believes himself to be more rational than the theist, when actually the same, according to the atheist's view, the same non-rational physical genetic forces are at work in both. So that even if the atheist is correct, it seems to me that it would be completely by accident rather than by any virtue or, or rationality that the atheist has. And Dawkins said this, um, I'm not quite sure that I've got this, and what he goes on to say shows that he hasn't. Uh, I mean... The same forces are shaping both the atheist and the theist, and indeed everybody, yet we come to different conclusions. Is your problem, how is it that we can come to different conclusions if our brains are shaped by the same forces? Now, that wasn't the the question, so Copan clarifies. He says, uh, my question is, why should the atheist believe he is more rational than the theist if the same forces are at work in both of them? That is, forces beyond their control because the mind is nothing but the brain which is just a physical thing which just does its thing according to the laws of physics in both the theist and the atheist Dawkins says well you could ask the same question about any difference of opinion well yes you could but that's an entirely irrelevant point and then he changes the subject and says if you were to ask me a different question uh, why I'm confident that my scientific rationalism um, is um, Maybe he was going to say true or reliable or something like this. He says, the right answer, I mean, the answer is that it works. But is that really a good answer? The atheist John Gray recently wrote this. He said, a rigorously naturalistic account of the human mind entails a much more sceptical view of human knowledge than is commonly acknowledged. Sam Harris points out that our physical intuitions have not been designed by natural selection to track the truth. Natural selection, if it's interested, in inverted commas, in anything, is interested in what works, not in what's true. Those two things may overlap, but they may not. The atheist Patricia Churchland, in a a famous statement, uh, said this, somewhat uh, tongue-in-cheekly phrased, She says, boiled down to the essentials, a nervous system enables the organism to succeed in the four Fs. Feeding, fleeing, fighting, and reproducing. Uh, The principal chore of a nervous system is to get the body parts where they should be in order that the organism may survive. Truth definitely takes the hindmost on that account of our minds. But if truth takes the hindmost on a naturalistic account of mind... How can naturalists be confident about the truth of naturalism? (laughs) The atheist Thomas Nagel, in his fascinating and controversial recent book, Mind and Cosmos, and remember, this is a book written by a prominent American atheist philosopher of mind. Mind and Cosmos 
subtitled Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. He says, evolutionary naturalism provides an account of our thinking capacities that undermines their reliability. And in doing so, undermines itself. In another book of his called The Last Word, Nagel argues that the reliance we put on reason implies a belief that the basic methods of the reasoning that we employ are not merely human, or this worldly as it were, but belong to a more general category of mind. If our mind comes from mind, you can understand why it might be reliable. But if our mind comes from mindlessness, it becomes, at the very least, much harder to explain. What about the implications of recent scientific discoveries like the Big Bang? Um, The atheist philosopher of science, Bradley Monton, recently said that if the universe had a beginning, then that lends support to one version of the cosmological argument. At a conference a couple of years ago celebrating Stephen Hawking's 70th birthday, the noted atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin commented, all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Well, what is the implication of that scientific discovery? New scientist, not exactly a bastion of religious fundamentalism, shall we say, had an editorial reporting on that conference that said this, the Big Bang's now part of the furniture of modern cosmology. Physicists have been fighting a rearguard action against it for decades, largely because of its theological overtones. If you have an instant of creation, don't you need a creator? Cosmologists thought they had a workaround. They've tried on several different models of the universe that dodged the need for a beginning whilst still having a Big Bang. But recent research has shot them full of holes. It now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. And ends this editorial on the question here, how do you get a universe complete with the laws of physics out of nothing? And by nothing, that's the philosophical understanding of nothing as not anything, not the Lawrence Krauss understanding of nothing as a highly complicated something. (laughs) So if there was a Big Bang, that directly entails the truth of the proposition that there was a first physical event in the series of physical events that have existed. There was a first physical event. But what about the idea that physical events by their nature, particularly when you think about their contingent nature, have causes? Contingent things stand in at least some kind of vague general causal relation to something outside of themselves, even if it's not a one-to-one causal relation. At this point, many people are minded to say, ah, but what about quantum mechanics? Doesn't quantum mechanics give... Uh, the lie to this premise. Well, here's an atheist philosopher of quantum mechanics who says not. David Albert uh, says that relativistic quantum field theoretical vacuum states, and that's quite a mouthful to say, no less than drafts or refrigerators or solar systems, this guy has a nice way of putting things, I think, are particular arrangements of elementary physical stuff. And the fact that some arrangements of these fields happen to correspond to the existence of particles 
and some don't. Isn't it a whit more mysterious than the fact that some of the possible arrangements of my fingers happen to correspond to the existence of a fist and some don't. And the fact that particles can pop in and out of existence from the quantum vacuum um, over time, as those fields rearrange themselves, he says, isn't a whit more mysterious than the fact that fists can pop in and out of existence over time as my fingers rearrange themselves. And none of these poppings, he says, amount to anything even remotely in the neighbourhood of a creation from nothing. It's the creation of a particle from the background fields of quantum mechanics. So no, quantum mechanics doesn't give you a get-out clause from premise two. But if there was a first physical event, and if every physical event has a cause, then it follows that the first physical event had a cause. But then you, of course, face the question, what was the cause? If the first physical event had a cause, it must surely be true that the cause of the first physical event can't itself have been a physical cause. Just think about it. There was a first physical event. It had a cause. What caused it? Oh, the previous physical event. Do you not understand the meaning of the word first? (laughs) But again, if the first physical event had a cause and that cause cannot have been a physical thing, what does that leave you with? The only remaining possibility is that the first physical event was caused by something non-physical, something supernatural, which is enough to show that materialism is false without even extending the argument further, as I think you can, to show that that non-physical cause of the universe probably has various other attributes that we would associate with the big G. And finally... Let's think just briefly about the the fine-tuned nature of that cosmos that sprung out of the Big Bang. I won't take up your time by going into the details of particular constants and fine-tunings and laws of nature. You'll probably know the basic idea about in culture at the moment of the way in which if the laws of nature were adjusted only very, very slightly differently than they are, then you would probably have a universe that didn't even contain matter, let alone chemistry, let alone organic chemistry, let alone life, let alone intelligent life. You would have universes that, you know, the gravity was such that they just flew apart before matter could coalesce, or they would shrink back and collapse again before matter could coalesce, and so on. It was balanced on a razor's edge. But this fine-tuning is due either to necessity, physical necessity, or chance, or design is a possibility to consider at least. If we can rule out necessity and chance, we can rule in design. Well, Stephen Hawking, interestingly, in his recent book, The Grand Design, notes that the, the fundamental numbers and even the form of the apparent laws of nature are not demanded by logic or physical principle. They could be different. When you think about it, the popular notion of multiverses assumes that universes are the kind of thing that can be different than ours is. So, according to Hawking, we can rule out physical necessity here, leaving us with a choice between chance or design. How do we make that in a principled, wise way? Well, American philosopher William Lane Craig, whose picture's in the background here, 
notes that in addition to high improbability, there also needs to be a conformity to an independently given pattern, an independently known pattern. And when those two elements are present, we have uh, what's called specified complexity, which is a tip-off to intelligent design. Because in our experience, whenever we can track back to the cause of something that exhibits specified complexity, that cause is an intelligence. So he gives this illustration. He says, for example, in a poker game, any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. You can't infer design or meddling just from the fact that you have an improbable hand of cards. But if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces, <laughs> you can bet ha, this is not the result of chance but of design. Or here's another everyday example. You see uh, someone at a hole-in-the-wall machine, cash machine, there's a card in it, and it's saying, enter a number. And they enter a number, four digits. Beep, 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 beep. Beep. They get the number of uh, pound coins or you know, notes and things that they want out of the machine. Well, did they strike it lucky? <laughs> or did they get the money by design? Did they happen to know the PIN number for the account? Which is the most plausible explanation of their bulging wallet. When a complex and unlikely event matches an independently given, a functionally specified pattern, we infer design. But applying that kind of thinking to the fine-tuning of the universe seems to be something that leads to an intriguing conclusion. And again, Stephen Hawking seems to admit that for the models of the Big Bang that we have to work, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. It's not just highly improbable, it's a very particular high improbability event. So he seems to be granting the premise that the fine-tuning of the universe exhibits this kind of specified complexity. It's the one of the very few arrangements of physical laws that would permit anything uh, complex and interesting to exist, whereas most of them would not. But if things exhibiting specified complexity are at least probably the result of design and the fine-tuning of the universe exhibits specified complexity, then you can see what follows. We have therefore ruled in design, ruled out chance, on the basis of a positive, in principle, argument. An argument from what we know about reality, not a God of the gaps argument from what we don't know. Now, Dawkins admits that the specified complexity of this fine-tuning is surprising, and he has a comeback. This objection can be answered by the suggestion that there are many universes, the multiverse objection. He's really arguing like this, but the crucial premise of what he's saying is, of course, the premise that there are enough different universes. It's not enough to object to fine-tuning by saying, I can imagine a circumstance in which it's not unlikely that there's a universe that hits that specification for life, if there were lots of different, differently tuned universes. That's not an objection. What you really need to say is, look, there are enough universes 
to mean that your specified complexity criteria doesn't apply properly. But I've highlighted that in red because, at least, present at least, that there is no evidence of other universes. It's a bit like we have the complete works of Shakespeare in one hand and say, I think the probable explanation of this book is an author. And Richard Dawkins says, no, 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 that's silly. Look, if X number of chimps existed with X number of typewriters and enough paper and they typed away randomly for long enough, they could, by chance, produce the complete works of Shakespeare. Well, sure, but why isn't it that when I show you the complete works of Shakespeare, no one in the room would think, ah ha ha, good grief, there must be a heck of a lot of chimpanzees somewhere. In the absence of independent evidence for the existence of a massive chimpanzee typing pool, <laughs> the one author explanation is clearly the rationally preferable explanation. And even if you do want to, you know, that's for the sake of argument, allow the existence of multiverses, as the agnostic cosmologist Paul Davis will point out to you, multiverse theories merely shift the problem up a level from the universe to the multiverse. Because why is it that there is a physical multiple universe generating mechanism that just so happens to be finely tuned in such a way that it produces lots of, enough, lots of different universes, including at least one universe that can have the property of having life in it? You've just kicked up the problem one level rather than solving it. The central argument of Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, just to finish here, I'm going to run about five minutes over, I apologise, is to say, ah, but I have an unrebuttable objection to God. Here is, wheel it on, the big gun that will finish off the God idea. The designer hypothesis, says Dawkins, immediately raises the larger problem of who designed the designer. The whole problem we started with, out with in the fine-tuning argument, was the problem of explaining statistical improbability, side note that also had an independently known pattern. It's obviously no solution to postulate something even more improbable than the thing we're trying to explain, the fine-tuning. Really? Indeed, there seem to be two different and confused arguments here that we need to disambiguate. The first objection is, who designed the designer? Well, who made God then? The second objection is the, you can't explain something by appealing to something more complex than the thing you're trying to explain. Well, what about the who designed the designer objection? Well, first of all, note that that objection would apply, if you were consistent, to all design inferences. And yet, our everyday rationality, not to mention various particular sciences, rely upon us being able to rationally make design inferences. To rationally say things like, I think this body was murdered, rather than dying of natural causes. <clears throat> Bill Craig points out that in order for an explanation to be the best explanation of some set of data, one needn't have an explanation of the explanation. 
Indeed, such a requirement would generate an infinite regress so that everything becomes inexplicable if we applied Dawkins' rule ruthlessly and consistently. Indeed, you could say this, that Dawkins is really begging the question against theism here. He's assuming that if God were to exist, God would be the sort of thing that requires a cause or an explanation outside of himself. But as John Lennox winsomely points out, if Richard Dawkins had written a book called The Created God Delusion, it would probably have sold a lot fewer copies. Because even theists know that created gods, they're called idols, are not real. What about this you can't explain with something more complex? Um, this is a recent news story you may have heard of. Some anthropologists came across these uh, scratches in a cave. And on the basis of seeing those scratches, the anthropologists said, aha, there were Neanderthals living in this cave. They said, aha, the best explanation for these scratches is intelligent design. Was that a legitimate thing for those scientists to say? According to Richard Dawkins' objection to the fine-tuning argument, it would seem not. But it clearly is legitimate to appeal to Neanderthals to explain those scratches. Indeed, again, Dawkins is begging the question by assuming, as he says in The God Delusion, that God would have to be highly improbable in the very same statistical sense as the entities that he's supposed to explain. But that's just begging the question. That's just assuming that if God were to exist, he'd be a contingent reality rather than the necessarily existent, independent, uncreated being that theistic uh, viewpoints across the spectrum have traditionally held him to be. As indeed atheist Thomas Nagel points out to Dawkins in response, God, were he to exist, is not a complex physical inhabitant of the natural world. God can't exhibit specified complexity such that he would need something else to explain him, to design him, because he is existing necessarily, not contingently. He's not a, a contingent arrangement of things. He's not, in that statistical sense, unlikely at all. If God exists, he exists with a probability of one. If he doesn't exist, uh, it must be because he's impossible to exist, but that would take us into an explanation of the ontological argument. So I think our brains are full enough, <laughs> and let's not go there. Um, but just notice that Dawkins is, is yet again begging the question uh, against uh, a possibility on the table that he doesn't even bother considering. So I think the new atheists are wrong about scientism, wrong about faith, wrong about materialism. Have they overreached themselves, at least in those areas? <coughs> yes. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Peter. I took Peter today to see the David Livingston uh, Memorial at Lantyre. And when we were walking around, I don't know if David, uh, if Peter noticed this, um, there was a question that said, what do you call a giraffe at the South Pole? And the answer is, lost. 
And uh, so I hope, I hope you'll experience it tonight and it's not that you're lost. It reminds me of a lecture I had at Glasgow University on the philosophy of science where the lecturer said, once you start thinking about thinking, it's worse than drinking. But uh, it's all about drinking. Peter, that was excellent. Thank you. Um, you said something to me today that I found very interesting. And you might want to just enlarge on it for a moment of you. I was asking you about your interest in philosophy. Mm. And you said to me that philosophy is the pursuit of wisdom. Mm. So, should Christians be philosophers then? Uh, absolutely. No, not necessarily in the sense of having to become a professional philosopher or undergo philosophical training at a university level, as it were. But in the original sense of that, that term philosopher, it actually comes from two uh, Greek words bunged together. And one of them is the Greek word philo, uh, which kind of means um, brotherly love. And Sophia, from which we get the name Sophie, if there's any Sophies in the room. And Sophia was the Greek word for wisdom. So literally speaking, philosophy uh, comes from a word meaning the love of wisdom. I say a philosopher is anyone who is dedicated to the to the wise pursuit of true answers to significant questions, ultimate questions about life, the universe, and everything, and to disseminating and defending what they think of as the truth um, through, the, through the, the good use of reason, not through tricks and uh, kind of pol polemical rhetoric in that sort of bad modern sense, but uh, through rhetoric in the ancient Greek sense of uh, really trying to help people to notice, to understand, and to follow what is objectively true and good and beautiful about something in the world. Now, what you've helped me to see today, and especially tonight, is that if you think rigorously about the general consensus about materialism, <coughs> if you think about it, you discover that it's completely specious. That well, it's, it's I think so. I mean, obviously, there are, there are plenty of philosophers who don't, but it is true to say that uh, this sort of materialist phase in philosophy became popular sort of in the mid-20th century and has reached something of an impasse in the field of the philosophy of, of mind, the question of is my mind nothing but my brain or is there more to, to it than that, um, whereby the, the materialists, the naturalists themselves have reached a consensus that we haven't solved this problem. We don't know how to explain things like the fact that obviously thoughts have this aboutness, that we have this kind of subjective conscious experience of the world from a first person perspective and so on, that there, there is no materialist solution to that. And this has generated something of a, a, a swing return to interest in, in mind body dualism as a view of the mind. And various prominent former materialists have been drifting in that way over the last. A few decades. And one of the conversations we had today, this is my last point, I'll come for some questions. One of the last points, one of the points we discussed today, which you helped me think through, was I said to you, is it the case that if anything exists, mm. then God must exist? Right. Okay, so well, this, yeah. on that point. Well, this is a different version of the cosmological argument than the one I talked about, which is called the Kalam cosmological argument from an from a, um, Islamic word. Uh, because it was uh, an argument that many Islamic philosophers in the medieval period talked about, and that was revived, uh, particularly by William Craig and, and others in the 20th century, by combining it with the then incoming information about Big Bang cosmology, which obviously revived interest by giving scientific support for one of the premises in that philosophical argument. But there is this whole tradition of just thinking about the nature of existence. 
and saying, if anything at all exists, and clearly it's pretty hard to deny that something exists, just try doing it, who, de- who made the denial, you know. Um, so something clearly exists. It's obvious that if something exists, it is either the kind of thing that, that whose existence is dependent or contingent upon something outside of itself. And we know lots of everyday examples of that, you know, you and me, for example. Or, as a possibility at least, it might be the kind of thing, it might not be that kind of contingent thing. It would, in other words, be a a non-contingent or necessary thing. The kind of thing that can exist without being contingent upon anything outside of itself. It's not self-caused, because, you know, you'd have to exist before you existed in order to cause yourself. So it's not a self-caused thing. But we have these two categories of of caused, basically, or uncaused existence, if you like. Now, okay, so something clearly exists. Um, As a possibility, that could be an uncaused thing. But you say, well, no, I I don't want to go that way. Um, Clearly, there are lots of things that exist that are caused. Is it possible for the only kind of things that exist to be the kind of things that have to be caused to exist, that are contingent on something outside of themselves? Is it possible for everything that exists to be the kind of thing that needs something beyond itself in order to exist? But what outside of everything could there be to depend upon? Well, nothing. And from nothing, nothing comes. Actually, to say that everything that exists is a contingent kind of thing is another one of those statements that generates an infinite regress. Yes. And uh, philosophers like avoiding infinite regresses in our explanations. So it would seem that either way that you go, you arrive at the existence of something that just has existence within itself, that it's able to give as a gift. And I'll, I'll give one, one sort of homely illustration uh, of this. Um, Supposing I, I want a book, and I know I think you've got the book, and I come to you and I say, could I borrow that book that you've got? I'd really like to read it. And you say, oh, yeah, sure, um, but I've lent it to my friend Fred, so I'll have to go to him and ask him to lend it to me, and then once I've got it, I'll lend it to you. And then when he, your friend goes to Fred, Fred says the same thing. And he goes to his friend, and his friend says this, and so on. Supposing that happens forever, ad infinitum. Will you ever get the book? Okay, clearly not. If you get the book, it must be the case that somewhere down the chain of lending, of lending the book, of lending existence from one thing to another, somewhere down that chain, there must be someone who had the book, who had existence, and was able to just give it to other people, to give it to other things. So, if something exists, God must exist. Okay. <laughs> Oversimplification. Anybody <laughs> want to, 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 to David? Um, Peter, what do you think um, happened in the middle of the 20th century to stimulate naturalism? Mm. Good question. What happened in the middle of the 20th century to stimulate this materialism? Um, I'm no sociologist, but I'll take a stab. Um, certainly it's true, I think, that there was a, um, there was a big movement in British and American analytical philosophy, as it was called, particularly in Oxford particularly under the influence of people like A.J. Eyre, uh, who wrote a very influential book called Language, Truth and Logic, that was trying to sort of ape the methodology of science, of empirical science, within philosophy. And to use 
um, empirical means as a way of defining, even when language was meaningful, when you could sensibly talk about something, um, uh, as a way, really, of, of trying to get rid of talking, even talking about the big questions of God and morality and beauty and so on, and just concentrating on how we use our language meaningfully, even. That was the big question at the time. And people like A.J. Eyre basically said, look, language only means something if it's true by definition. Like saying, oh, um, that uh, unmarried man is a bachelor. Well, yeah, that's what bachelor means, an unmarried man. So, sure, that, that's just a true by definition tautology. Or... It's something that you could at least in principle check out with your senses, empirically. As, you know, the emphasis from Richard Dawkins on empiricism. So if I were to say, look, the dark side of the moon is made of cheese. You say, well, that's a very silly thing to say. And yeah, it might be, but it is a meaningful thing to say, according to A.J. Eyre. Because at least were you to find yourself on the dark side of the moon with a spoon, you'd kind of know what to do in order to empirically check out <laughs> what I'd said. And so what I said was meaningful. But then Eyre tried to argue that that meant, if you followed that rule, that would mean that talking about God, who you can't touch or taste or smell, was meaningless. Talking about moral values or beauty was meaningless. It's nonsense poetry at best. Now, the big problem with this, under the, although influenced by you know, the rise and the impressive nature of science and so on, and trying to be empirical and scientific about things, the big problem was that people soon pointed out that that rule of verificationism about when language is meaningful didn't pass its own test. It wasn't true by definition, nor was it something that you could show was true by appealing, even in principle, to empirical evidence. So it kind of was like sawing off the branch that it was sitting on, as it were, and the movement fairly rapidly died. Um, but people like Richard Dawkins and A.C. Grayling are one intellectual generation removed from that movement in analytical philosophy, and indeed a lot of the new atheists did their doctoral work under the supervision of people like Galen Strawson, A.J. Eyre, etc., who were in Oxford at the heyday of logical positivism. And this sort of ghost of positivism that's no longer attached to the meaningfulness of language, but is still attached to the truth of your claims about reality, kind of hangs about haunting uh, the new atheism. So that's at least one driver that I can see has a direct connection through uh, to today's new atheists. Um, let me take this point, and I'll come back to you later. Peter, thank you very much for coming up. It was a tremendous presentation. Especially thank you. point two, if I may. Okay. Um, you, you're from, you represent the Demarish UK. Well, I, uh, let me, let me hey, yeah, I hasten to qualify. I, I'm, I'm not here representing Demaris, but with my own hat on, as it were. I think uh, that comes from Act 17, doesn't it? It does, yes, from the end of Act 17. It's yeah. happened to a society that uh, it drifted from God and ended up following the philosophy. Some people have argued that uh, mankind mm. lost his way when he... Wait, I had to go to philosophy, perhaps. Yeah. In any event, <laughs> you read all these guys, 
And uh, I always wanted to ask you about their historical perspectives. Mm. What, what do they understand about historical evidence and historical truth? I mean, mm. four-fifths of the Bible has to do with prophecy mm. and history. Mm. Mm. And if you don't like prophecy and history, you'll get problems with the Bible. Yeah. But, uh, so what are their, what's their attitude to historical truth and historical evidence? Because the yeah. Bible deals with historical truth. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and Christianity is one of the few... Um, religion traditions in the world that kind of puts its neck on the empirical block in that sense of saying this is something about historical events that you can verify or falsify in the normal kind of historical research kind of a way. Um, St. Paul saying, you know, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then basically let's all pack it in, go home and take up a different hobby, you know, um, <laughs> because it's not true and uh, we are beyond all men to, to be pitied for following a false Messiah and so on. Um, so, yeah, the New Testament certainly puts its head on the empirical block. And the interesting thing about the New Atheists is, despite their, their public proclamation, that what they're interested in is empirical evidence for truth claims. That's the key thing. What's your evidence? Their actual approach to the New Testament is to say on, on a priori, that's non-evidential grounds, prior philosophical grounds, to say... Miracles can't happen and can't be sensibly believed in because, and mainly they avert to David Hume, um, who, Christopher Hitchens, I think, says, says David Hume wrote the, wrote the last word on miracles. He clearly hasn't kept up with the conversation in philosophy since. Um, uh, and therefore, there's really no, no delving from a new atheist position in any depth at all with the results of modern New Testament studies or ancient historical kind of approaches to those documents. Despite their averred interest in evidence, what they actually do is say, no, on philosophical grounds, that, that sort of thing just can't be true. And they haven't read into the subject. Their New Testament studies is at least 100 years out of date. They're caught in a sort of German liberal Boltman era um, uh, New Testament studies phase. They haven't uh, heard of the second, let alone the third quest for the historical Jesus. Um, <laughs> and um, they're caught up in all sorts of sort of um, populist internet memes like Jesus is a uh, late legendary accretion upon someone who may or may not probably didn't exist and uh, uh, who has hardly any references in uh, extra-biblical literature of the time. And Victor Stenger says, you know, the reference in Josephus is agreed by a majority of historians to be completely made up when that is not true, and Josephus mentions Jesus twice, etc., um, etc. Et so they, they, they just come out with this sort of, um, you know, Jesus is another pagan uh, dying and rising corn god kind of thing, when part of the whole... Um, uh, uh, Jewish reclamation of Jesus in New Testament studies has been to notice that perhaps uh, the German scholars of an earlier era were a little bit biased against Jesus being Jewish, um, think about it, and <laughs> wanted to understand him in a, in, a, in a Greek pagan context when actually the Jews were fiercely nationalistic fiercely anti-pagan and were the last people on earth to adopt a religious belief uh, on the basis that um, it was similar to Greek mythology. Not to mention the fact that the majority of scholars would say any uh, uh, parallels, apparent parallels between the life of Jesus and various you know, Osiris and so on are vastly overplayed, have no causal link 
to uh, the New Testament belief in Jesus, uh, primarily because most scholars would also say those beliefs, actually, that we, when we can nail them down and date them, are later than the Gospels. And that actually, if anyone is copying anyone, it might be that the pagan mythmakers are kind of de-Christianizing Christianity in order to invent Mithras and so on, as it were, um, if anyone's copying anyone. David? Well, I'm curious to find out that Peter reckons that the notorious deathbed conversion of Anthony Flew might well represent uh, the answer to your question. Mm. Was it a fallout with empiricism or was it a fallout with the likes of Dawkins who perhaps had overreached himself? <coughs> Well, okay, so, so I'll fill people in in case you don't know the story here. Anthony Flew was a very famous um, British uh, philosopher, um, uh, David Hume specialist, scholar, and for many years one of the most prolific atheist uh, authors and debated various people. He was at Oxford in the day of C.S. Lewis and um, debated Lewis and gave one of his famous papers at the Socratic Club uh, when Lewis was president and so on. Um, and he was an outspoken um, atheist, but his position as an atheist had always been I don't believe in God because there's not enough evidence. Show me enough evidence and I would believe, but there isn't enough evidence for me to believe. Uh, and then later on in life, um, Flew uh, changed his mind and said, now that new evidence has come in about the beginning of the universe and particularly about the, the biochemical complexity of life, the informational nature of DNA and so on, um, that he was forced to conclude that there was some kind of a God. He didn't believe in Christianity. He thought it was the religion to beat, but he didn't believe in Christianity. He didn't believe in life after death. He thought that was impossible. Um, and noted that various critics had said, oh, you know, poor Flew, he's getting on a bit. He's worrying about what's going to happen to him. You know, he's kind of caved in as a life insurance policy. And he said, well, I clearly haven't because I don't even believe in life after death. <laughs> I've just come to the, to the conclusion that there is now enough evidence to force me into the position of saying, I always said I would follow the evidence where it led, which was the motto of the Socratic Club, and I think enough evidence has come in now to convince me. Uh, and various people attacked him personally for that. He published a book which he co-authored uh, with Roy Abraham Varghese, who um, helped him write it and sort of padded it out with the illustrations and so on, and passed it by him because he was in his 80s by then and uh, found it a little bit taxing to produce a new book. Um, but he issued uh, a press release through his publishers saying, this book really does represent what I think. And he gave a number of independent press interviews at the time um, where he uh, enunciated exactly the same views that were in the book, although he was you know, not being shepherded by Roy Abraham Varghese at the time. So I think the idea that some people have that sort of, you know, some, some Christians railroaded this poor philosopher in his dotage. Uh, you know, he said, I, I am, uh, you know, I am sort of curmudgeonly and my, my views are my own and I'm very difficult to railroad and I really have changed my mind, guys. Um, so if you want to follow up on that story, um, get uh, Anthony Flew's uh, last will and testament, as it were, uh, book called There Is a God. <laughs> David, did you have a question? Yeah, did, yeah. Peter, thank you very much. That's a fantastic uh, tour de force of a, of a summary of this, uh, uh, addressing this question. I'm just thank curious you. to hear what you think. Given that you've now kind of debunked Dawkins' central argument, you know, you've shown the question begging nature of the yeah. why is it, do you think, that he still has such uh, a 
huge following, are they completely mm. oblivious to this? Mm. Are they willfully blinded to it? And what about Dawkins himself? Do you have any information as to how he has responded when people have pointed out the philosophical naivety of his position? Yeah, I, I don't think he's really engaged at that academic level. His He's a, a retired professor of zoology writing outside of his subject specialism in his retirement. Um, he always had a slight sort of anti-religious strain to his writings that came through occasionally when he was just known as a science popularizer and a defender of evolutionary theory, um, but has sort of changed to become part of this new atheist movement, published The God Delusion and so on, which has been roundly criticized not just from theists like myself, but from um, you know, there's a whole uh, contretemps within the atheist community, not only over the content, but over the sort of the, the rhetorical approach and methodology of those, uh, like Dawkins as well. Um, and he's not really, he's not responded to the, the academic criticisms that have been published in the peer review literature over this by um, folks like William Lane Craig, uh, for example. Um, he's just concerned at this kind of populist level, and he's, he's a populist writing to a generalist, non-specialist audience. Um, so, and, you know, a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. <laughs> um, and perhaps I, I'll leave it there, otherwise I'm in danger of sort of going into trying to psychoanalyze people that, A, I don't know particularly well, and B, I'm not a psychoanalyst, so... Peter, I'd like you to enlarge something just briefly. Um, in answer to the question over here, you talked about the um, neglect of the history of Jesus because mm. of presuppositions. Mm. Now, can I move you to the science debate, mm -hmm. which is the one that's very much mm. uh, current. It's current <laughs> in the Sunday Herald. It's current in the Glasgow Herald. There's a petition before Parliament to have science education bound to only natural processes. Now, mm. there's a perception... That, that the science has nailed this down once and for all, yeah. there is no God. But the <laughs> problem, and we've been discussing this, mm. you can see a few words, the problem is not the science, mm. the problem is the philosophical presupposition behind yeah. the science. Yeah. Do you yeah. want to say a word or two about that? Absolutely. And, and that's not just f coming from the angle of those who presuppose the truth of a naturalistic worldview, um, but there has been a movement uh, in science that's a comparatively recent affair to say that when you do science in effect you should do science as if naturalism were true it's, it's a rule called methodological naturalism it's saying we're not, we're not saying that naturalism is true we're not saying there isn't a God we're not, we're not passing judgement on those issues science is just about focusing on giving physical explanations for physical things um, we just don't go there um, so, A, if that is a constraint on what science can say that's built in just definitionally, philosophically, you can see um, the fallacy of then using the results of science to try and show that there isn't a God when science is, has built into it the assumption that we just don't mention anything to do with, with God. You know, there's something a little bit odd about trying to use science that way. But also, today within the philosophy of science community, and, and I emphasize this is true of atheist philosophers of science, the general agreement is 
that is actually we've failed to nail down any sort of airtight definition of science that can draw a distinction between so-called science and pseudoscience or science and metaphysics. Indeed, back in the day, science used to be part of philosophy. It was called natural philosophy. It budded off into its own sort of discipline and uh, and independent societies and so on a little while ago, and uh, a Victorian uh, vicar coined the term science uh, to explain it from the Latin word scientia, which just meant knowledge. Hence, when Thomas Aquinas said, you know, uh, theology is the queen of the sciences assisted by her handmaiden philosophy, he was just talking about knowledge. Um, But this rule of methodological naturalism is, is highly controverted within the philosophy of science community, by atheist philosophers of science. So, for example, there's an atheist philosopher of science called Bradley Monton, who wrote a book with the somewhat provocative title, An Atheist Defends Intelligent Design Theory. (laughs) Uh, God in Science, An Atheist Defends Intelligent Design Theory. And he doesn't quite, but he partially defends intelligent design theory. And he points out, and I think this is an excellent point, he says, um, if science... If you define science according to methodological naturalism, that means that science is no longer a search for the truth. It's no longer about just looking at the world and following the evidence wherever it leads. Rather, it turns science into the search for the best explanation of things that we can come up to that's subject to the requirement that that explanation be naturalistic. And that is not the same thing as a search for the truth. And if science is anything... It ought, first and foremost, to be a search for the truth, and therefore science is better off without being shackled to methodological naturalism. And he is far from being alone. Read again, uh, Thomas Nagel's Mind and Cosmos. Thomas Nagel argues that intelligent design theory, although he doesn't agree with it, he says it is science, you you know, it's sensible to call it science, and that the real question is the, is the empirical question about, well, what are the odds and the, the evidence involved and so on? And the ID theorists are asking the right questions and pointing out some, some very uh, uh, important difficulties with the neo-Darwin synthesis. Uh, but um, he's sceptical about the neo-Darwin synthesis, but he's an atheist, and he, um, and he doesn't want to go down the intelligent design route because he thinks that points towards God. And he, he would prefer some other kind of middle way out, as it were, that he's in search of. Peter, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to keep good faith with you and stop there. Well, there's some tea and biscuits, and please take the opportunity to hang around and talk with Peter sure. and others. Thank you very much for tonight. Please remember our next event is on the 1st of December, and it's in Lenin's Evangelical Church in the